This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. All right, welcome to the latest episode of Justin and Donald Save America. As always, I am Donald, joined by Justin. Justin, how's it going? It's going good. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> great, great, great input. We got a good leave, flow starting. Let's just leave here. it at that. Does anyone really want to know what's going on in my life? I don't think so. <laughs> no, you don't. I know what's going on, and I don't. I don't. You don't, you don't want to know. know. No one wants to know. Trust me. <laughs> Uh, so we've got a special episode here, and I say that because usually it's just me and Justin kicking around ideas for an hour or so, 45 minutes at a time. But this time we're going to be joined by a guest. But before I bring in that guest or even tell you who it's going to be, well, you already know from the thumbnail, I'm sure. But um, I do have to put that message out there, that that call to action for everyone that's uh, tuning into uh, these episodes, the content we put out there. That there's a bunch of stuff that you can do that costs you absolutely nothing, takes you only a second, and can help us break through those big tech algorithms that prevent people from seeing content like this. Those things are hitting the like button, sharing this content, being a subscriber, even leaving a comment underneath the video all help help uh, spread the word of, of stopping socialism and Justin and Donald Save America. So I just want to urge you all to do that. But let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the meat of this. So joining Justin and I, we have Carol Roth. She is a best-selling author. Her newest book, which you can see over her shoulder over there, is titled The War on Small Business, How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. If she seems familiar to you, it's because you've probably read one of her numerous articles published on, you name it, Fox News, The Blaze, and elsewhere, or the fact that she was a frequent guest on basically every news station. Carol, am I missing anything? I'm also a, a, a frequent contributor to Glenn Beck's program, which I know you guys are very good friends with. So That's true. Best and, and I want to mention that this is a very special episode, you said. So it's kind of like the 80s when they used to have the very special episodes of like the facts of life in different <laughs> yeah, strokes. Yeah. But this, this is, is a very special episode. Yeah, this is like a, just like different strokes. Exactly. exactly just the same just like it. This is like a crossover <laughs> event where like the Munsters meet the Adams family or exactly. something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, yep. So we're, we're bringing you on, uh, because you, uh, in all of your writings and appearances, uh, on Glenn Beck and all of that talk a lot about the same stuff that Justin and I find ourselves talking about, uh, in the little banner below, we've got ESG, BlackRock, the great reset. You frequently talk about, uh, different inflation, other financial issues. So we thought, you know what, let's, let's bring this party together and, uh, we'll get a little bit in depth on some of these things. What do you say about that? I think that's a fantastic idea, and I just hope that uh, we can throw something positive in the mix every <laughs> once in a while, because like I'm a really optimistic person. I like to have a good time, and I just feel like lately I'm a purveyor of gloom and doom, so like hopefully we can just dig in and find those like silver lining nuggets along the way. Uh, oh, I get that. Yeah, that's that's actually part of like Justin and I's whole plan for this show. It's like we're always talking yeah. about these super dire situations, but we always seem to have a smile on our face while we do it. I don't know if that's yeah. insanity or just uh Yeah, it's it's the unofficial motto of the show is it's the end of the world and I feel fine. So that's that's the official motto. I wish we could get the rights for the song, but we just can't figure out how to do that so um yeah so this is yeah no yeah that's true we could yeah you could sing the cover that's a great idea let's totally it could be like a weird al thing you could change the words and you can get weird al and the accordion doing it i bet weird al will do it that we could get i bet he would i bet he would i bet he would so i think i think maybe the first the first question that i want to throw out there before we get into sort of the more specific stuff um is i would just love to know you know, there's all this stuff that's going on in the news today. There's all these crazy things happening with the economy. Just as sort of a big picture general, I'm going to put you on the spot kind of thing. What do you think is the biggest, most important, if you had to pick one, one of the most important issue facing America, let's say today, what would you say is just the number one thing that people should be aware of? 
So it's uh, sort of adjacent to my wheelhouse, but it has to be energy because it sort of impacts everything else. It impacts the level of inflation that we're seeing here. It impacts the quality of people's lives and the ability for us to flourish. Um, it you know, it's can potentially can change the entire trajectory of being a first world country. Um, so, you know, whether it's the financial piece, you know, the, the human piece or kind of where things are falling apart, I think the energy story sort of touches on everything that is going on and there isn't sort of a place, you know, whether it's ESG um, or the financial markets or the you know, global economy or, you know, whatever it is that isn't somehow related to energy right now. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, that, that that is something that we uh, talk about a lot, especially on our In the Tank podcast at the Heartland Institute. Um, energy is the master resource. Everything's built on top yeah. of that foundation. And, uh, you know, we just saw what yesterday, uh, California issuing a flex alert to not, to, to not use any any uh, appliances that you don't need because they're running out of energy. They might be facing blackouts and compare that to what's going on in Europe. And, yeah, that is definitely one of the it, most it's, important it's really... things going on. It really amazes me because, you know, for all these years, you know, the, we work for the Heartland Institute and they're super into energy policy over there. Um, and one of the things that they all the energy people have been talking about for years, going back to when Donnie and I, Donnie and I were interns. That's how we started there going all the way back to when we know nothing. And, and we were just coming into this, learning it all. It's like these predictions about what's happening right now have been yeah. made yeah. for years. Like if right. you, if you go down this road, this is, this is what's going to happen. And now that stuff is happening. It's actually occurring. All of the things that they warned us would, would, would be going on is now going on. It's, it's crazy. Well, you know, and to um, that point, sorry, sorry to jump in, but no, no, to that no. point, cause we just talked about this on the last episode is like, you know, all the different media outlets that, that push any climate denialism out. So, you know, all of these articles that are talking about any of these issues from electric vehicles to renewable energy to anything like that doesn't include any of the naysayers because you don't want that dirty climate denialism to to, to pollute your article that you're going to put out there. So what what happens is when we see this stuff happening that we've been predicting, but because we don't get a word in the media, people are caught by surprise. They're not expecting all of these things to happen even though we've been warning about it for years. It's, yeah, it's absolutely it, insane. And it's crazy because the predictions that have been bad, um, you know, continue to be out there. I mean, Mark Perry, who I'm a big fan of, has a list of like 50 years worth of climate mm. predictions that haven't come true. Everything from, you know, yeah. polar ice caps to Manhattan being underwater to all these things that we do digest um, mm -hmm. that everybody hears about. And somehow they're never held accountable for the fact that you've been wrong every single time. But now all of a sudden you're going to get it right and you don't get to hear the other side. And it's frustrating. Back to what you were saying about California. You know, If you take California and you said that that economy was a standalone country, it would rank fifth in the world. Okay. So we're talking ahead of India, right behind Germany. Yet, and, and and obviously, you know, we are the, now some people will laugh at me, but theoretically the most advanced country in the world. We have, you know, the most money, the most resources to be able to do things. We pay a lot of money for the privilege to do things like have air conditioning and, you know, leave our lights on, that kind of stuff. And so to see, you know, the this huge economy and to see this huge country and, and also then over in Europe and some of these other advanced economies being moved backward, being moved into a second world or third world scenario um, under the guise of this is somehow good for you is just like it makes me want to like pull my hair out and scream at the top of my lungs and the people are just kind of going along with it. Like, yeah, no, it's it's okay. Like we're going to ration our energy over here. And I'm, I'm going to sit in like the sweltering hot heat and, you know, potentially my grandmother is going to have a heat stroke or whatever, because she can't use her air conditioning. Yet the countries that are polluting the same globe that we could mm -hmm. be 
<laughs> you know, uh, taking over their production, doing it more cleanly. We're just going to let them produce more because somehow that makes sense in Bizarro world. It's just, it's so outside the realm of logic and common sense that it frightens me that anyone believes it, let alone that it's driving policy. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And between, you know, the the energy, the energy component of this, um, and and you know, again, seeing the book over your shoulder, the the war on small business, it's all the COVID stuff that that happened, all the response to COVID, all of the things that we did. Um, what do you think um is kind of the main driver of like the inflation that we're experiencing? Do you think it's both of those things? Is it some third thing I'm not uh, taking into account? Uh, what what's your thoughts on that? So, I mean, it is a hundred percent deliberately driven by policy, but it's done in steps. So there are two pieces of this. The first was under the Trump administration, and sorry, all of you who are fans of Trump, you don't like to hear this, but this is the reality of the situation. Um, they came up with 15 days to slow the spread that then the governors went and said, oh, we, we can do these things. We're going to go act on it. The ridiculous policy that came out of COVID, first you had the Fed who moved their balance sheet up to $9 trillion, which was just absolutely insane, printing out money out from nowhere that in and of itself was going to cause some level of inflation, but also government policy. You know, you had these direct stimulus checks that went to individuals, and then you had policies that disrupted everything else. It disrupted the supply chain, it disrupted the labor force, and so on and so forth. So that was already in effect. That's piece one. Then you have the Biden administration takes over, and the very first thing they do is they attack energy policy. They cancel oil and gas leases. Um, you know, they decide that they're going to be a, against the Keystone Pipeline, so on and so forth. You know, they just, this was what they they campaigned on, um, and then they said, "Well, you know, everybody got Donnie dollars under President Trump. We need to put out Biden bucks." But wait, hold on. Everything's opening back up and we've got vaccines and whatever else now. No, no, we need to spend trillions of dollars. So it, it would have been some inflation. But the energy policy plus the American, the quote unquote, American rescue plan that they're like, oh, how could that have caused uh, a stimulation of the economy when we handed out something called stimulus checks? OK, it's like <laughs> literally in the name. Um, they put out that stimulus into what was already a supply constrained economy. And those two things just took, you know, something that was going to be bad, lit a match on it. And, and this whole idea that it was Putin is insane because we hit a 40 year high in inflation in January of 2022, which was way, you know, a month plus before there was any talk of this invasion. Now, certainly that exacerbated things. But if we had had normalized energy policy and everybody wasn't so dependent upon Russia and what was going on there, we could have had a, a counterbalance to that. We could have doubled down. We could have changed the course of that. But they decided not to do that. So it really was a mix of Fed policy, that monetary policy and um, fiscal policy and other government policies that just created this perfect storm to take inflation to the levels that it's at today. We would have had some, but um, you know, this this kind of historic scenario that we're we're muddling our way through is all completely deliberate and policy driven. And oh, by the way, they could fix that with a change to policy, but they're going in a different policy direction that just fundamentally doesn't make any sense. Well, no, wait, wait. I thought they were fixing it. I, I thought they just passed a <laughs> Inflation Reduction Act. Isn't oh yes, that, I, uh... I forgot. I forgot. Yes, no more it's inflation. It's in the name. That's yeah, right. from the name, it's got to have all the things to do. It's got to be true. They put it in the name, inflation, right? Right. It's like the fluffy puppy bill. It must be about fluffy puppies. And if you don't, if you're not on board, you hate puppies. Yeah, yeah it's um, it makes no sense because you have a couple of things that are going on. You have the Federal Reserve who has just had this destructive policy over the past you know, decade and a half with zero interest rates and loading up their balance sheet um, with money from nowhere and, and devaluing or debasing the dollar. And so they're coming out and they're raising interest rates and they're just going to continue to do that to destroy demand. I mean, that's literally what they're trying to do. They're trying to destroy demand, consumer spending, business investment in a way to quote unquote, cool inflation. 
But as I alluded to, the inflation is coming from the supply side. It's not that we have too much demand. It's that we don't have enough supply. But the Fed doesn't have that tool. They can't print oil. They can't print labor. <laughs> they can't do, do whatever. So, you know, when you've got a hammer and everything looks like a nail and that's just what you're doing. So they're trying to do that. At the same time, the government is adding to spending, <laughs> trying to stimulate the economy through government spending. So those two things are at odds. And then the Fed's policy is sort of at odds with what's going on naturally. There is natural demand destruction because inflation is so high and because of what's going on um, around the world with a, a, a potential global slowdown um, and maybe even a recession. So that they're, they're getting sort of that, that natural help. And so like everything is just going in a, a completely bizarre direction. Um, you know, the right hand's not talking to the left hand. And, you know, the likely outcome here is that we do see a protracted global recession that just, you know, ends up, you know, not necessarily quelling all of that inflation for some time, but eventually doing it on the back of, you know, more people being out of work, businesses going under, and a lot of, you know, kind of very sad things for the economy. So you say, uh, you, sorry, Justin, I, I have to ask this question. No, no, no. So, you, so you say that these things are like policy driven and all of this. Yeah. I, I, you know, obviously I believe all of that as well. Um, is this out of ignorance? Do they just not know better? Is this just aimlessly uh, going after their agenda? And these are just the, oh, we didn't know that this was going to result. Or, you know, do you think that there's something a little bit more nefarious going on here? So this has been, you know, the the question since I started doing the research um, in early 2020 for the war on small business and kind of following all of this policy. There's no doubt that some of this is just, you know, central planning doesn't work. Right. And no matter even if you had the smartest people in there, and I think we can all agree that we have nowhere near a smart person anywhere near there. But even if you did, they just don't have the same tools and resources to sort of replicate what was going on in the broader market. And so some of it is, you know, stupidity or, hey, I'm just going to grant favors to the people I like and, you know, whatever the consequences are for everybody else. Like, I kind of don't care that picking of winning winners and losers that we've been seeing, um, you know, on a very steep level for a long time, but really on an accelerated basis for the past few years. But based on my research and seeing the same names pop up over and over again and the level of interconnectedness, like I'm sort of like, one time it's a coincidence, <laughs> two times a big coincidence, although Seinfeld said there is no big coincidences, <laughs> but that's a separate thing. Um, you know, after like several amounts of times, it's like, yeah, this isn't a coincidence <laughs> anymore. This is coordinated. So there is no doubt in my mind that you have this confluence of sort of late stage, you know, empire central planning factors meeting nefarious bad actors who are taking advantage of it or at least taking advantage for their own benefit so you know whether you say it's intentional or deliberate like we're kind of splitting hairs sure. but i do think that there is that deliberate component here even though i don't think that everybody is involved in like one big master plot or right, anything right, right. But they are, you know, being led or being given, you know, scraps and they may not even be realize that they're part of these useful idiots, but they're being utilized um, to get us to this point because there's just no other logic for it. I mean, they, the scope of things, there's no doubt there has been an infiltration you know, across the country, you don't get in a scenario where we're moving backwards and we're going to be like rationing energy right. on an ongoing basis um, just from idiocy. Eventually that self-corrects itself. There's somebody standing in the way going, nope, we're not, we're not going to change this. We're not going <laughs> to yeah. change this. Yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I, I don't know. I have a theory that's kind of like an overarching theory of, of what's been going on for the past 10 years or so, maybe a little bit longer that kind of relates to all of this. I want to know what you, what you think of it. So I think if you go back to the Occupy Wall Street movement and all of that, and the very sort of anti-Wall Street, anti 
um, big corporations thing that was really been in the bloodstream of the American left for a very long time, but suddenly seems like it just doesn't even matter anymore. And none of them care. I mean, I know that they, they, they say they hate the big corporations, but they're all in bed with them now. And the big corporations, most big corporations, in the United States have gone so far to the left. They're basically indistinguishable from like left-wing activist groups at this point, right. On a lot of issues, like you could name the corporation they've advocated for some left-wing that they have nothing to do with. Uh, you have airlines getting involved in Georgia election integrity laws as if it has something to do with their business model. I mean, we expect big corporations to lobby for their own stuff, right. but for, for other causes that have nothing to do with them, that's that's just insane, right? So now we've seen this, like, this, this sort of combination. And what I think has been going on is sort of beginning with the Occupy Wall Street, I think this money printing thing that's been going on has been going on for a very long time going back well before that and i think big corporations and big banks and financial institutions realize that as long as interest rates stay low and it's easy to get access to capital it's cheap to get access to capital and easy they're going to make money they're going to make money no matter what happens they'll make money everyone will make money and, and uh, stock prices will continue to rise over time. And as long as they keep printing the money and they keep the interest rates low, everything will be okay. But that doesn't solve the problem of, well, you know, the right doesn't really like us if we're pursuing this kind of, these kinds of goals and big subs and subsidies from governments and all this other stuff. And the left hates us because we've got lots of money and they don't like that. And they want government to have all the power, not us. So I think there was a point in time where a lot of the leaders in business and in banking and other things decided, you know what, we got to go with one of the, well, right now, everybody hates us. Everyone hates us. We have to pick a side. And so we're going to pick, I think they deliberately, I legitimately think they sat down and said, we're going to pick the left. We're going to go with them because we can buy them off, I think is the theory, right? We just throw <laughs> lots of money their way or we pay lip service to their causes and we'll buy them off. And over the past decade or more, and especially over the in the Obama era, this this sort of happened. All of these public-private partnerships started developing, and you had all this coordination between big Wall Street firms and the Fed and things that we've never seen before. I mean, BlackRock was advising the Federal Reserve on investment, on, on where to put their money, on where to buy uh, uh assets in the last uh, recession here. I mean, you don't, that's not normal for this kind of coordination. And so my theory is that this was the, the really big institutions of the world decided we got to do something. We're going to buy them off. And it's the left that we've, we've chosen could have just as easily been the right, but I think they thought it was easier with the left. So they bought them, they start trying to buy them off. And now we have these, this sort of a weird alliance of of parties who hated each other historically now uh jockeying to sort of outdo each other and work with each other and all of this weird stuff and it's forcing people on the right to now suddenly be anti-corporation in a lot of <laughs> cases which is super bizarre because all the people on the right were big advocates of gigantic corporations for all this time and it's just causing all kinds of madness that we're just not used to so that that's my overarching theory of what's been going on and i think that this is why we've seen interest rates stay part of the reason why we've seen them stay so low for so long and and why big corporations are okay with it why the left is okay with it because i think they both realized you know uh, really low interest rates lots of money printing big government subsidies actually benefits both of us so if we could just we both will get what we want if we just are all on the same page. I mean, do you think that this kind of makes sense or is this just, I know it's simplified. <laughs> so it, I get so, it. Yeah. So, but, look, so I think you have some good things there and I'd, I'd offer up some tweaks. So there's this like weird connection. If you go back and you look at the Fed chairs and you look at Wall Street and you look at some of these big corporations and you looked at government, there's this kind of like weird revolving door 
where like everybody kind of like starts at Harvard and then they end up in the Fed system and then they have to have a treasury secretary and then they go run a private equity firm. I mean, you can go look through all the biographies and just go, oh, yeah. oh that's weird. You know, that that's kind of a strange thing. And so, you know, what I kind of saw in, in terms of the war on small business and doing the research there and just also being a commentator forever in the financial markets and being a recovering investment banker. So this is kind of where I cut my teeth is that I think that it's it's there's the the, the government big business special interest triumvirate that has sort of exploded. And then I think there's the political piece. And I think those things are sort of disconnected. So I think that, yes, the, the keeping the interest rates low for long was just purely a wealth transfer. It was a way for corporations to get stronger. Um, you know, a big corporation has much more ability to take on capital. They have the ability to get bailed out if something goes wrong. They're going to put that in, and they're going to end up putting their competition out of business because if you're a small business owner, you have to guarantee that personally, you're more conservative. It just doesn't go as far. So to me, that was really a wealth transfer. When people say, oh, we didn't have inflation after the Great Recession financial crisis with these low interest rates, we absolutely did. It was just all in assets. So you had inflation in the markets and you had inflation in housing. You had inflation in hard assets. It just didn't flow down. That's right. The Person. So you're person. Not how long have I been saying that? How long have I been saying that? Right. So we absolutely <laughs> did have inflation. It was just contained because of the way that it was structured. Um, so I, I really see this as a giveaway. And I think the reason is that it's much easier for big businesses and big corporations to benefit each other. They're a handful of them, 20 some odd thousand. They're much easier to control. They've got the money to, to pay the lobbying dollars and to support the campaigns. And so they just find each other very useful. And so I think that is, is all happening and it's a thing. And as you said, like, you know, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary under President Trump, is the one that hired BlackRock. And, you know, everybody had this outrage, like, why are you hiring BlackRock to administer what, what's going on and advise the Treasury and whatnot? So it's not necessarily a Republican or Democrat thing. Like, it's a government thing. And if you get in that place, I think that happens. So I think there's that piece of that. Then there's the kind of like go woke corporation piece. And I think it's sort of separate. I think the reality, and again, this is just my weird theory, is that the people on the left are much more inclined to be activists and much more likely to hold things against people than the people on the right who are just kind of like, just leave me alone. Like, I don't care. Just don't get in my stuff. And CEOs are very much into minimizing risk. Like you would think that they're risk takers and allocating capital. They're not. They're literally just trying to manage their business from quarter to quarter to get a pat on the head from Wall Street and exercise their stock options and whatnot. They're highly risk averse. So I think it's kind of like even in Hollywood is like they're just going to say these things so that sounds like they're like down with the people and then people don't realize that they're the ones that they should be turning against. Right. You know, like, like nobody ever comes after like Beyonce or Michael Jordan or, you know, anyone else for like you know, having a billion dollars and all this kind of stuff right. because, you know, they're, they're, they're in the okay arena that has all said, you know, we're, you know, we're good. Whereas if you're, you know, a corporation that's, you know, not down, like you're a target. So I think it's like that limousine liberal thing is like, boy, we better give ourselves some cover and show that we're good people or else they're going to figure out we're not and you know, come after us. So I think there's sort of like more of that going on that's sort of separate from the alliance with the Democrats, you know, kind of at the level you were talking about. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, there, there's a, there's something that I've been kind of kicking around too. Uh, call it a theory of my own. I don't know. <laughs> I won't be as long-winded as Justin's explanation of his, but uh, but like there's this at least you know I'm not the, the oldest guy in the world, but like as far as I've been politically aware, it always seems like the right has been uh, you know the big boogeyman for the right is this idea of the United Nations or the, just the government in general, but like the United Nations, this idea that they are going to be some super uh, international, supranational uh, governance that's going to dictate their will on their member states, regardless of what your personal government is going to say about it. 
And then on the left, there's the, the same type of boogeyman, but it's like these big mega international corporations that despite what you can do when it comes to the government, they're going to enforce their will on you. And it's like now that I've been doing all this stuff with ESG and the Great Reset and everything that we've been talking about, it's like it almost seems like both sides were half right. And it's like <laughs> these international organizations like the UN or the World Economic Forum are are, are putting their marching orders through these international super conglomerate corporations and <laughs> installing their will upon everybody. So it's like this weird mixture of both of these ideologies. You would think that this would be something that could unite both the left and the right. But uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So it's interesting because I also have been doing a ton of research on ESG and, you know, Great Reset and all these kinds of things. And it was very interesting to me to kind of trace it back to the UN because I kind of came into politics in a very different way, kind of through the financial angle. And I never really knew any of this stuff. So I didn't really realize, I mean, I just thought the UN was a joke that everybody sure. made fun of. Right. And then I kind of start peeling back the onion and I went, oh my God, like, like it all ties back to UN and then the WEF. And it's just like, again, the same names that keep popping up over and over again. Um, so I do think that there's something there. And I think that's where the handful of bad actors sort of infiltrate the people who are just trying to do their thing and going, oh, well, I, I don't really believe what they're saying, but if we use this, I bet it would be good for PR or I bet it would be good. Or yeah, we'll just stick this on our website. They don't even know what it means. And I even believe like the World Economic Forum, like I was a useful idiot for the World Economic Forum. Like when I first started being in sort of like the influencer sector, I had a fellow person who had a blog who said, hey, this thing called the World Economic Forum invited us to come, you know, watch their big event in New York. And all we have to do is like tweet about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I mean, they had like speakers that I knew that wrote business books and it seemed fine. And like, it didn't seem like there was any issue until like a few years later when stuff started popping up. And I'm like, the heck is this? <laughs> so it's like they pepper like the crazy stuff in with like a lot of like normal stuff. So you're kind of like, wait a second, like where, where am I? You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, you got the front of the store and there's like a drug ring in the back, but you didn't know that there was the drug ring. You're just like, I'm just here to buy some shoes or whatever. So yeah, I just, I, yeah. So I think I'm a lot pretty, of people- I'm pretty sure they have the same tactics used by the church of Scientology to get their members. I think it's very, very similar. You bring them in, they have no idea what's going on. They just had some friend from Hollywood who invited them to a party one time. Right, and then before and then you they- have to put your hands on like these, you know, metal things and all of a sudden, yeah. but, <laughs> but yeah, but I do, I, I still think, cause I know I've had conversations with CEOs of public companies who have like ESG and I'm like, you know, do you even know what that means? Like, no, I have no idea, but it's like a thing. And my, you know, human resource yeah. person or whatever person told us to put it on a DEI person told us to throw it on. And I don't want to get in trouble. So we're just throwing it on. So I think that like, there's a large percentage of the people who are like espousing stuff and they have no idea that yeah. they're like spreading the like this horrible like cult gospel. Like they don't know yeah. they're in the cults. They really don't. Yeah, I, I've always mentioned how there's almost like a stratification of everyone that's involved in this. Right. This isn't some like uh, this isn't some like everyone goes to a secret meeting at right. some time and gets their talking points. I do think that at the very top there are the true believers and that's like the Klaus Schwab types and the people at these Davos events or whatever. Yes. And whether or not that true belief means that they think that they're saving the planet or that true oh, belief no. means they that they have they some don't think they're saving the planet. They, they're sinister they're tactics. shaping the planet. <laughs> right. They're designing shaping. the future. We're going right. to, yes, we're going to put our will. I mean, that man is nuttier than a jar of peanut butter. I mean, it's, <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but then the level below that, when we're talking about these big corporations and to the same point about like the virtue signaling and all of that, I think they're all signing on to this because they know that this is the path that they have to take if they're going to stay competitive, if they're going to stay profitable. They have to play this game that's being set up by all of these other right. people. And I've described this ESG system. Anyone that's watching this show is probably familiar with ESG and the Great Reset, social credit score aspects of all of this stuff. That, that this is just like the largest, croniest system that's ever been de devised by man. It's corporate social credit is what it is. It's a corporate right. social credit system. 
Yeah, so that it's just you know they have to play these these games, whether or not they believe in the you know the 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 true believing stuff, the rhetoric that comes from the Klaus Schwab types. It doesn't matter. They know they have to play this game. They they know they have to have a high ESG score if they're going to continue to get uh, you know the investments coming through, or you know the next round of stimulus money from the government, or you name it, infrastructure deals, anything like that. They have to play this game. So I think that this is just. The biggest cronyist system ever been devised by man. So, A, um, I mean, would you concur with that assessment of it? And B, where does that leave the small businesses? How, how do they factor into all of this, this plan? Yeah, so, I mean, the whole thing, I would like to see more of a takedown. First of all, we... I'm sure you found this in your research, but we as a country fund the World Economic Forum. Like we give them our taxpayer dollars, which is infuriating. The companies that you uh, give money to all belong to it. So they're funding. So they've got like this multi hundred million dollar, I think it's $300 million operating budget that comes like in large part from us to have people working against us, um, which is insane. And I do think that we need to you know, make it more taboo and to tell companies like you shouldn't be associated and we don't want our tax dollars going there. And this is insane. And they're, they should not be having a say on policy. Um, because I do think there are a lot of people who probably, you know, CEOs and, and high level executives, they're like, you know, these guys are weird, but they throw a great party in Davos. And I want to go like see, and you know, these other competitors that I don't get to see anytime. And it's a great boondoggle. So whatever. And they just kind of go along with it, that if there was more pressure on them, that like, maybe they wouldn't do that. Um, mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think that that's just a, a like a, a horrible scenario. Um, and then what was the second part of that? Or was that the whole part? <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, no, no, how to, how, you know, cause they all, all these big businesses that are a part of this, they like establish their little arena. Right. And then they're getting all the, the high oh, ESG business, scores. Yeah. They've, yes. they've, they've, they've staked out their area. And yes. I just wonder where small businesses fit into the equation. Yeah, they don't fit into the equation. And that's the problem. You know, 99.9% .9 of all businesses in the entire world are small businesses. You know, in the U S it's something like, 32.6 million at this juncture. Um, and, you know, they're super independent and they're hard to corral. And so, you know, even though before COVID, they accounted for about half the economy, about half the GDP and half the jobs, um, you know, they're just not useful to these big folks who are trying to push policy and, and shape the world in their vision. And, you know, that's why I believe the decisions that happened in COVID are still happening. You know, small businesses are really getting screwed over from it. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy when I talk about this, how many people have completely changed the reality in their minds. I mean, small businesses, um, by and large, were the first that were shut down. And again, it wasn't all of them, but probably a good third of them that were shut down first. They were shut down the longest. Yes, there was this mess of a PPP program, um, but A, it was supposed to be for the subjugations of their rights, right? They took, the government took the property and said, you can't use this for social good. And so they needed to be compensated. They got nowhere near the level of compensation for the subjugation of their rights. And because the PPP program was designed in a way that was such a mess, a lot of that didn't go to the smallest businesses. We're hearing now, I mean, a, a very large portion of that, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 or maybe it was even more percent was fraudulent. It went to a bunch of, you know, connected celebrities and big businesses, public companies, people in government. So it really didn't get to the people who needed it. And frankly, it was a fraction of what was spent in, in terms of the overall COVID relief. Um, so, you know, they were then, you know, really put at a disadvantage. Then you disrupt the labor market and the supply chain, which weighed very heavily. It would have weighed heavily on small businesses if they hadn't just been through all of that, sure. but coming out of that. And then now inflation. I mean, the, the likelihood that you're going to have thriving small business sector on an ongoing basis. And now we've got like California upping the minimum wage for fast food joints to $22. You have the PRO Act, which is coming out against um, gig contractors and, and mm. the independent worker economy. And so all of these things are really a deliberate attack on small business, which again, whether you think it's 
fully intentional or we just don't care of their collateral damage. They're just not helpful and useful. They want a centralized group of businesses that they can control. And, you know, whether that's in the U.S., whether that's coming from the U.N., the, the, the World Economic Forum, what whatnot, you know, there's no small business that's showing up at Davos <laughs> and, and participating in this, right? It's right. being driven through these big organizations who also have the money to fund the WEF. So the small businesses just don't factor into that equation, but they do factor into the equation of economic freedom, you know, individual rights, property rights, wealth creation opportunities, uh, decentralization, and all those things that we want to see, uh, which is another reason why they don't like them. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. That that seems to be, I mean, the, the kind of the more uh practical ramifications of all this esg stuff is just like the forcing out of small businesses i think it really got a kickstart during all the covid stuff that you're explaining my my heart goes out to like these these restaurants that were that were trying to open like the month before all these lockdowns it's mm. just oh it's absolutely the, terrible the, stuff. the thing that was so the thing that was so just insane about it was and I and I think if you're a small business owner, first of all, if, if I had been a small business owner, I would never be a small business owner again after what happened. Yeah. Because how do you know this won't happen to you again? I mean, there's just no guarantee. But the uh, the the crazy thing about it was the rules were so obviously not designed right. to actually do the things that they say that they were trying to do. So the the best example was you know I lived in an apartment in North Carolina, but in a, in a sort of an urban area, there were coffee shops everywhere, T tons of coffee shops everywhere. Couldn't go to any of them. Wasn't allowed to go to any of them. Couldn't even have four people in it. Wasn't even allowed to like social right. distancing. Couldn't even go in there. Right. And do a lot of these places, but I could go on a plane with like 200 <laughs> and have like eight people sitting within arm's reach away that was fine but i couldn't drink my coffee in the corner by myself over by the plant that was not okay i couldn't do that and so it was like it was so obvious that they just either like you said either they just were trying to destroy all these businesses or they just didn't care that they were destroying all these businesses, right. you know, but we couldn't shut down the air travel. We could, God forbid we ever do that. Well, I've know? got, a, I've got a worse one for you. So, you know, I'm in Illinois and, um, you know, a, a couple of years before COVID, it was not legal to have uh, cannabis. You could not sell cannabis. And then the state granted all these cannabis licenses and they were making a ton of money. And so, you know, if you had a weed shop, you were essential, even though you <laughs> weren't even allowed to be open. You were illegal <laughs> a couple years before. But like, you know, mom and pop business selling whatever, you know, staples that they needed to sell yeah. had to shut down. Right. Yeah. Or like you could get your pet's nails groomed at PetSmart, but you couldn't get your own nails groomed at the nail salon. I mean, it was just yeah. so not based on any data and science. It was completely based on political cloud and connections. And the fact that you still have people who are arguing about that really makes me want to punch them in the face. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I hear you. It's, it's, it's just incredible. And, and then the fact that it disappeared Basically overnight, all of a sudden it was like, you know, why it okay. disappeared, right? So I was on the yeah. plane the day that it happened. It disappeared because we decided it wasn't going to happen anymore. And a judge stood up for it. I was sitting on a plane when the judge said, you do not have to wear masks on planes. This is not a thing. And literally I looked up, I looked at my phone and <laughs> we went like this. <laughs> and um, it was clear that the flight attendants had seen the news but weren't mm. going to make an announcement, but they also weren't going to say anything. Yeah. And as we walked through the airport, it was like half the people had gotten the memo and half the people hadn't, but it was literally, we just decided it was, a, if that hadn't happened, if we were just like, okay, well, we'll go along with it. And nobody had challenged it. We would still be dealing with that right now. Mm. Probably right. I, I want to real quick, before we move on to, to something else, I wanted to, to briefly touch upon ESG and small businesses, because this is something that just came up recently for me. Are you familiar at all with um, Moody's, Moody's Analytics? Sure, they have a, I know you're familiar with them, but they have a, a uh, ESG score predictor. Cool. Right. Yeah. Have, have you, have you by any chance ever used this 
or or <laughs> because because the thing that I am I'm so I've read the white paper for it. I've been trying to get access to this ESG score predictor for like a year. They won't give me access to it. They won't even let me buy it. It seems for whatever reason. Oh, I've been tr I've been trying really hard. The people keep blowing me off. The salespeople. But basically, my the, the thing the reason I'm so interested in it is that according to the white paper and the stuff that surrounds it, essentially the ESG score predictor can allow anyone to go in, basically type in any business that exists or at the very least any corporation and come up with an ESG score for that corporation based on their algorithm, regardless of whether they've actually produced an ESG score report themselves. So uh, they, they market it as a way to to get access to ESG scores for small and medium-sized businesses that aren't producing ESG reports. So according to them, they have, I think it's hundreds of thousands of, of these reports in this database. Uh, and I, I would, I, so I think what this means is that small businesses, medium-sized businesses, if you have one out there in America, you run a small mom and pop shop or whatever, you might very well have an ESG score. Wow. You don't even know it. It's in this database, which is not available to the public. And, you can, <laughs> so, and the only way to do it is to, is to buy it. I've been trying to buy it. They won't let me. And so I'm, I mean, I'm dying to know what's inside this. I mean, do you have, do you have, do you, if you had any experience by any chance with this at all? So I've seen several different um, ESG scores. I'm familiar with what the ones from um, World Economic Research, which is not World Economic Forum, but it's a separate one. And then there's one that's called like, it's like three letters, like CSR or something like that. And then there's the Moody's one, um, which uh, if you've seen some of the things like, uh, you know, in the public markets that they've called ESG, you can see that's just a scam. So I have not dug into, I know that Moody's does this and it's, you know, it's referred to very widely in financial media. So I don't know what their model is. So it could be that, you know, they create a score or it could be that like you buy in and then like maybe your score gets better. I mean, I don't know what the, what <laughs> yeah. they do. Right? If you like, buy I'm, I'm their not service. To slander them. I'm just telling you like things that <laughs> other places do in terms of scoring. So I don't know what that means. But I, what I will say about ESG in private companies is it's not nearly as prevalent. And you can see in areas like the energy industry, that it's actually easier for private companies to get capital than it is for public companies to get capital because like it just hasn't really infiltrated at that level yet. Mm. And that the companies that are smaller and don't have to deal with, you know, kind of the, the bigger issues and can go to the private companies um, have been able to skirt around it. So I've actually seen, you know, companies that are smaller in a sense benefiting from capital allocation um, and also from customers who don't want to do business with these companies that are involved in ESG. But again, a lot of them just don't know. I, I'm on the board of a hedge fund um, that's a private hedge fund and they do non-correlated assets. And I, you know, I was actually talking to them the other day and like, they just weren't really, they're just like, we, we're just neutral. Like we don't care. We don't know. We're just like running our business. And again, I think that's why, the smaller businesses, regardless of the industry, just aren't useful to these kinds of things because everyone just wants to run their business. They don't want to be caught up in any of this kind of BS. But I will look into to Moody's a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's pretty it, fascinating. If you pay for their service, your ESG score automatically gets a five point bump. I think that's how it works. Well, the <laughs> problem is, and I know this from other databases, is that then you get thrown in the database too sometimes. I have one... Um, I used to run a broker dealer when I first left investment banking. I had my own broker dealer and I got thrown into an investment banking database that's owned, I think, by Standard & Poor's now. And it's taken me like 15 years to get myself out of the database. And I wow. would get these cold pitches all the time. <laughs> like, hey, we'd love to see your deal flow. And like, I don't have any. Like, you do not know. <laughs> go, go look at what I'm doing. Like, trust me, you don't want to be having this conversation. <laughs> with me right now <laughs> yeah. um so yeah so that's that's interesting but um, yeah it's the, the, the way that it the way that it's sold is the whole point of it 
is to be able to get access to a, a completely algorithm created ESG score for any other business, not for your own. So they and probably so, they probably crawl, crawl the website, right? They crawl the website, they look they, for keywords, they look at what industry, and they just make. I mean, that's the problem with this is it's all made up, right. um, and it's and all very even, subjective. And you've seen there's so many instances of greenwashing um, that you're starting, whether it's in Germany or here, to have companies get in trouble because they're using the ESG label and they're not doing anything any different. Even some of the ESG index funds. Like they've got like it's just a bunch of tech companies. And like, I mean, Elon Musk was kicked out of one of the index funds, the <laughs> Tesla, and they had a bunch of like traditional energy companies. So there that's the other part of this is like there's like these nefarious people pushing something. And then you have all the scammers who are just right. like, oh, this is a way to extract fees. And I honestly think that's how you get like the Black Rocks of the world involved who've heavily pushed it. But that was a way for them to take a low margin product and to put something fancy around it so that they could extract more fees. And so a bunch of people in the industry decided to do that. And now they're perpetuating something that is like just it's all made up. It's a scam. Well, you brought up BlackRock, and we're already at the 50-minute <laughs> mark of this podcast, so we should probably talk about BlackRock. So BlackRock. we've already talked about ESG, Great Reset, how it seems like it stacks the deck uh, in favor of big businesses against small businesses, where small businesses, whatever sway, whatever power that they used to have is diminishing because of all of these things that are being set up in place. On the opposite side of that spectrum, we have these giant asset management firms like BlackRock. So uh, I know Justin and I have talked about BlackRock numerous times on this uh, podcast, but uh, from your perspective, how does BlackRock or even anyone else that's kind of in that same realm kind of fit into all of this? So BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. Um, I know that the assets have gone down as the market has gone down a bit this year, but they were up to 10 trillion in assets under management. I mean, just think about that vis-a-vis -vis, like the size of the GDP of like most countries. Like it's insane. And them... Um, and then the two other big ones, which are Vanguard and State Street, if you look at the three of them together and you look at sort of like the v proxy votes that they account for, I think it, it's something like 40% of the votes. So if you look at any publicly yeah. traded company, you're probably seeing one of those three, if not multiple of those three as the largest shareholder because they just have so much capital to deploy and like anything else, you know, it's it's <laughs> it, as you get big and you get, you know, that much cloud and power, like you have a lot of power. And, you know, as right, from the, the Spider-Man franchise, yeah, yeah, the, from the Spider-Man franchise, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And in my opinion, they have not um, been taking that responsibility seriously. Um, they've been very destructive with it. So if you look at sort of all of these different things, like anything you think of, and you kind of do like a trace back, like almost every time I seem to find like black rocks somewhere in there. <laughs> right. And and again, it, it, in a sense, it makes sense because, right, they just have so much capital and they have to deploy it and they have to be everywhere. Um, but there's a giant downside to that, which means that, you know, they can shape whatever's going on. If we look at what happened in Sri Lanka, Right. And for I'm assuming most people know the you know, crazy uh, level of starvation that's going on there and the complete implosion of the economy. Um, you know, they were supposed to be this model country for the WEF and the prime minister um, had, you know, written all of these articles for the WEF and the World Bank about how I'm going to shape it and these, you know, kind of ESG ideals. But, you know, that was somewhere around like 2016, I think, when you had that first piece come out in the WEF. If you go back two years before 2014, BlackRock was talking about Sri Lanka as being a really interesting investment opportunity. Wow. And it's hmm. like, you know, I just like, again, coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. But like, why is it that every time I go to like dig into something, you end up having BlackRock there? And, you know, again, that may just be a coincidence, but there's just a lot of things that just don't sit right um, with me. And so I do think um, Larry Fink has been a, a, a big vocal advocate of ESG. 
again, part of that I do think is not necessarily believing in it, but believing it's really good for him and his business. And when you're at $10 trillion in assets under management, I would imagine it's very difficult to think of ways to continue to grow your business because at some point you've captured, you know, <laughs> a large part of the like the world. Like, how much more can you capture? So, you know, this is a way to continue to dictate and influence power and and you know perhaps get some more growth on the fringe and whatnot. And, you know, so we saw BlackRock touting China. You know, China's you know on the about ready to implode last year. The head of BlackRock's uh, asset management put out a note that said you should increase your exposure to China three times, three times. Now, at the same time, they had just gotten um, the they sort of got the first I don't know if you want to call it license or approval to run mutual funds in China. So, again, like could be a coincidence, but doesn't seem like one and really bad advice if you look at what's going on. And a lot of this was very predictable. And I said so at the time. Um, So, yeah, I just feel like because they have so much money and it's weird, we get you know all these calls to break up big tech and break up these big companies, but like nobody has called to break up these big asset managers. Right. Um, you have a lot of influence when you have $10 trillion in asset management yeah, well, under management. So they're just, they're, they're just, and they're very open about it. I'm not telling you anything that they wouldn't tell you in their own shareholders. Sure. They have said like, companies that don't comply with our way of the world, like won't get our capital. Like they've, they've said that. So they're, they're dictating it, not from um, a shareholder value perspective, in my opinion, it's from, you know, whatever it is that they would like to see. Yeah. You know, one, one thing that does come with the benefit of them being so large is it does give us like a, uh, a good starting point to look into some of these things. <laughs> it's like, it's got BlackRock's name on it. Like, oh, we should pay attention. But they're to everywhere. That. Like where, where do you start? I thought <laughs> I, you were I saying it. it's a good villain to rail against. <laughs> right. Right. That's but, why we are constantly updating and working on books all the time is because well, it never well, ends. One of the things that you see these stories about uh, that do kind of catch on sometimes um, when, it, when it comes to BlackRock or even like Blackstone or some of these other investment uh, houses is like the idea that they are buying houses, <laughs> like literally they're going around and they're buying houses in mass. Uh, this has been a story that surrounded all of this stuff, uh, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum, Great Reset, all of this idea with BlackRock and them going around and buying like entire neighborhoods and stuff. So have you been paying attention to this uh, story? Because I'm very curious about it. Very much so. So this is fascinating. Um, during the Great Recession financial crisis, 2007 to 2011, there were 4.7 million homes in this country that were foreclosed upon. I mean, just insane to think about. Prior to 2010, there was no institutional capital in single family renting. There there was none. Like literally this market didn't exist. So coming out of the backside of this foreclosure, um, you know, these boom and bust cycles are actually really good for people who have a lot of money because they have the ability to take advantage of the, the busts and then ride away the way up to the booms. So this whole sort of new arena um, was brought about. And like you said, BlackRock, Blackstone, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Capital One, they all put funds together. And it's not like they personally are going out and buying up these homes. They are funding these you know institutional buyers that you know so they're providing the capital for um, the purchasing of these homes. And so now, you know, coming out of the Great Recession financial crisis, when you have a market that is underbuilt by five to four to five million homes, I think it, it is, um, or maybe it's five to six, but you know, somewhere in that range. Um, and there's a ton of competition. And then you've had, you know, these these uh, long period, decade and a half of like basically negative int- negative real interest rate capital. Um, they're going out and they're competing, and because they're renting, they're going to just do a quick makeover and rent it out. They don't have to see the homes. They don't have to do an inspection. They're just trying to get their hands on as many as possible. And so if you are sort of the average American and you want to compete, it's very difficult to compete with somebody who's got all cash and, and has you know no 
um, nothing that could potentially hold up the deal. So you have all of these people who are touting ESG and the social component of that as being good citizens and you know promoting low cost housing and blah, blah, blah. The part they didn't tell you it's low cost housing that benefits them that they own. Um, and then you're know, taking that opportunity away. And what's really staggering is if you think about um, households, the number one component of household wealth is a home. Right. And if you think about the breadth of it, so in terms of what most households have in terms of wealth, most of them have, you know, some sort of like money in the bank kind of thing, checking, saving, CDs, then a vehicle, which is, you know, a depreciating asset, but, you know, whatever, you still have some equity in it. And then a home. So like, you know, this is a big tool for wealth creation in the yeah. United States. And then because of, you know, basically this engineering that's happened by policy, um, now you've got institutions who are competing with you for the American dream. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think like your average person, your average American citizen, especially in the last 30 years, they might not think that they're going to like own a business, you know, uh, you know, they're going to uh, somehow own a business in the future, run their own business or something. It's obviously is something that people should pursue, you know, whatever. But I think your average American still today thinks that eventually I'll own a home. And it's just like now when you're seeing these just like thousands, tens of thousands of homes being bought up by these by these things, like these are the actual assets that people might realistically own one day. And they're all being bought up by these mega corporations that are completely in line with ESG and the Great Reset and stakeholder capitalism, all of that. And I think that's why this story resonates so much. It's something that like really might affect you one day. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's, and and there you know the, the more money to be made, the more capital is going to be behind it. And the worst part is, so if you go through their annual reports, and there's you know kind of three big players. Th there are a bunch of them, but you know, three that are publicly traded that I focused on: Tricon Residential, um, Invitation Homes, and American Homes for Rent. And if you go through and you like see this, the thesis that they're trying to spin, they're trying to say like, "Oh, people love the convenience of like not having to own a home." No, people literally cannot afford the down payments, the right. property taxes, and the ongoing payments. So they're making that substitution. But given the same pricing choice, they would much rather own the home. Of course. And so you know every sort of thing that is a um, a sales factor for their business model is a personal dig at the wealth that you as an individual can create. And it's pretty, it's pretty scary. It's pretty yeah. scary. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt about it. Justin, we're already over an hour. <laughs> Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or last minute questions? Anything like uh, that? I have so many, but I don't think I don't think Carol's gonna be able to. Yeah, we can do it. We can do a part two. It was a very special episode, so we could like break it up into pieces, and we can we can do another. All right, fantastic. Carol, any any parting words for our guests or anything like that? Anything you want to pitch? Anything? Anything? I feel like we didn't say anything positive. That was my goal. All right. Um. So you know, like any of these things that we're talking about, like you do have an opportunity to push back. And I think, you know, businesses are economic animals. A lot of these businesses, as we said, you know, kind of are going along with it because they think it's you know, keeping them out of bad press. Like get your friends together and start writing and, you know, telling these companies you don't want them involved in ESG and you don't want them involved in politics and you're going to pull your business and right. do pull your business, you know, if they continue to do that. Um, the same thing on the home front, you know, there are homeowners associations that are looking into limits. You always have to be careful with that because you don't want to completely um, you know, close off every opportunity. But like, you know, maybe it's something that your housing association has to vote for. And if you start seeing there's too many of these corporate buyers coming in, you know, and, and everybody's hasn't exhausted other options. You try and push them into to other options. Um, but there are ways to fight back against these things for whatever reason. I don't know why there is there isn't sort of the desire to push back um, on financial issues. Like I never see like the march for our homes or like the march against the Fed 
or like these things oh, that are man. like the That's foundation. That's a genius idea, by the way. No, I mean, it, <laughs> why, why is that? Like all these causes, like this is the one that like should unite everybody. And, you know, the last, the only one I can think of is the Occupy Wall Street, which was just a good idea and thought, but completely disorganized and didn't have any asks and like, you know, yeah. just what, but like, like there needs to be more activism around these things, because if we lose, you know, the, the wealth creation opportunities and you, <laughs> you lose your freedom and, you know, it just kind of goes in a bad trajectory. So um, there is, there is action you can take. So don't be, this, this is meant to inspire you to take action, not to make you go cry in the corner. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, fantastic. I mean, you didn't even uh, mention the war on small business book. That okay. Yeah. So the there. plugs. So yeah. So the war on small business, um, buy it from a small business, uh, like bookshop.org fulfills from small businesses, a great place to get your book. Nice. And, um, if you have a warped sense of humor, um, I'm at Carol J.S. Roth on Twitter as well. All right. Fantastic. Justin, parting words for our viewership. Uh, no parting words other okay. than, uh, you know, don't even follow me. I'm done telling people to follow me. I've given up on that. So um, <laughs> All right. just well, uh, join us next time here on the channel. If you're interested in seeing more of this fine content, um, just don't expect it to be as smart as it was today because... Carol's not going to be here every week, so <laughs> you're stuck with us. Right, but right. thank you, Carol, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, we, as we told you in the lead up to this, we are just a couple of of nobodies trying to save the world, and uh, you're a lot smarter than we are. So thanks for joining the cause today and helping us out. It's just because I've got better hair. That's really, really all I've got on you guys. And yeah, I by take way, offense to that. I love, uh... I, I love, I love the reverse psychology. Don't follow me. Just do whatever, right. do anything, but don't follow me. Yeah, we used to have a hashtag unfollow Justin on Twitter, but uh, we don't have That's that. That's true. Today. Don, you uh, have lovely hair too, but you know it's, it's, it is you. hard to compete. <laughs> That's right. All right, audience, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Justin and Donald Save America. Like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you can do a couple of things that help us break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people. And those things are very easy to do. Just hit that like button, hit that share button, leave a comment underneath the video. It doesn't cost you a cent, only it'll cost you a couple of minutes, but it'll help us out greatly. All right, that'll do it for us. Make sure to tune in next time.